Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, that's a mouthful, but it's the number one killer worldwide and all of us are at risk for it some more than others. So what can be done to prevent it? And if somebody's already had a heart attack or a stroke, can they prevent having more? Well, we've got two experts at the table today. We've got Dr. Margot Vasser, clinical cardiologist at the Queen's Heart Physician Practice, along with Dr. Ronnie Salem, vascular neurologist at Queen's Medical Center. And they're here to tell us more about how to avoid having heart attacks and strokes now and throughout our lives. Now, as always, we'll be opening up the lines for those of you listening who want to join us. You can at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. Before we get started, I want to mention a couple of free public health events regarding strokes and brain issues. You know, May just so happens to be National Stroke Awareness Month, and Queen's Medical Center is putting on a lecture at Wednesday, May 27th, 6 to 7 p.m. at the Queen's Conference Center. And Dr. Salem is going to be there, and he's going to be talking about what to know if you are having a stroke and what can you do if you have one, and how do you know who to call, what to do, where to go, etc. And you can check out that lecture at queensmedicalcenter.org. Also at Polymomi, every Saturday in June from 8.30 to 10.30 in the morning at the Medical Center, they're going to be having different neurology sessions. They're going to be talking about migraines and strokes and headaches and dementia, and that's another lecture series again every Saturday in June. And you can hear more information about that or just go to polymomi.org. So some great free public health events that are available out there for those of you who are interested in the topics, as I'm sure many people are. And, you know, it's free. What a great opportunity to see doctors there, ask them questions, get more information, find out about neurologic issues that could be affecting you or a loved one. So now as we get started, I want to welcome both Dr. Salem and Dr. Vassar to The Body Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Happy to have you both here. Let's talk about some basics because now both of you work at the hospital and you see people when they are really, I don't want to say at their worst, but okay, at their worst. So they've been admitted. They have a serious problem. Let's talk real quick about what are the types of things that that you see in people in the hospital so we can kind of get an idea about what we're going to be discussing today. So Dr. Vassar, you work in the hospital. You see people with heart troubles. What problems in particular? Well, of course, first that comes to mind are your standard heart attacks. And so heart attacks, you got it covered. Heart attacks. The next would probably be um, the immediate complications of out-of-control hypertension, um, mm. what we call hypertensive urgency or emergency, depending on what other symptoms you're having. And then finally, probably what I see the most of is um, heart failure, um, exacerbations of heart failure. And then there's, all, all, of course, the different rhythm issues and problems related with fast rhythms and slow rhythms alike. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about blood pressure. That's a risk not just for heart troubles, also a risk for strokes. Uh, Dr. Salem, your general practice, you see a lot of people in the hospital, they've had strokes. Uh, yeah, that's definitely the majority of the patients I see are patients that come into the emergency room with once the strokes already happen and they recognize the symptoms or someone in their families recognize the symptoms. Um, but uh, as a neurohospitalist, which is also um, you know what I do, I see 
you know, a lot of other neurologic conditions such as seizures and brain tumors and things like that. But uh, strokes are definitely the, the vast majority of what I see. Well, and that's where the connection comes between the two of you, because what's good for the heart is good for the brain and vice versa. So we're going to talk a little bit about what are the best ways to prevent, not that it wouldn't be nice, but to prevent being your patients in the hospital, because that's not a goal that any of us truly have. Nice to have you on the show. Don't want to have to be your patient. So let's talk a little bit about about some of these issues. Let's talk blood pressure. Now, Dr. Vassar, it's, it's well known. Blood pressure goes up, and we should keep it under good control because bad things can happen. What are some of the bad things that happen with uncontrolled high blood pressure? Well, you know, with every beat of your heart, there's additional pressure being put on your arteries and all the vessels throughout your body. So that increased pressure um, puts you at higher risk for developing those that those blockages we're talking about, the atherosclerotic disease. Um as you get more va- damage to the vessels, um, you get the downstream effects. So things like um, renal insufficiency, so kidney failure, um, of course, the strokes and things like that. And then the heart itself can be become um, changed under, under uncontrolled blood pressure. So it can give you what we call a cardiomyopathy or sick heart tissue itself. And it can get larger. I mean, I often tell people, you know, if you're going and bulking up at the gym, you're building your biceps, then you get to see it. You can, quote, flex a muscle. Unfortunately, if your heart's pumping against a lot of pressure, your heart can enlarge. In fact, the muscle part can enlarge because it has to keep pumping against this pressure. Exactly. And that can actually cause this change to your heart that's not actually very healthy. Let's talk about blood pressure. What does the top number refer to? What does the bottom number refer to? And what's a good normal? Sure. So that top number is what we call systolic blood pressure. And that's the pressure that's exerted when the heart is contracting. So when the heart's squeezing down, and that's that's why it's a higher number. The bottom number is what we call diastolic uh, pressure. That's reflective of how the heart's relaxing. And um, I think in, in recent years, actually, the relaxing aspect of the cardiac cycle has gotten a lot more respect along with the contracting. Um, the numbers we want to see, I'll tell you, as, as we get more and more research, these numbers get lower and lower and lower. But I think um, roughly you want to you you want to stay below 120 over 80 um, as you go up. Uh, we've got different designations: borderline, you know, mild, uh, moderate, severe. Uh, but yeah, 120 over 80 is uh, the number probably to keep in mind. Now people get older, blood vessels get stiffer. Do we expect an 80 year old to have 120 over 80? You know, yes and no. Um, you know, normal remains to be normal. Absolutely. Um, and but we do know as you get older, blood pressure does trend up, and there's a number of reasons for that because your vessels um, stiffen with age. It's part of um, this human condition. Uh, there was a time that we didn't treat hypertension in the elderly for that reason. We just figured it was normal. But um, if you've got a life expectancy, I would say even of a year or two, there's going to be uh, benefit of treating that pressure. Now you might not treat it quite as aggressively. If I've got a brand new hypertensive patient who's feeling fine and is 90, I am not going to be as aggressive in controlling his or her blood pressure as I would in a 25-year-old. So age plays a role. Some role, yeah. Genetics yeah. play a role? Absolutely. You know, um, genetics, and, and we're, we're learning more about how ethnicity plays roles in, in, in um, medicine and um, your susceptibility to different disease. Um, everything is, is genetics to some degree. Environment, however, you know, stressful lifestyles. Uh, we know that exercise actually brings down your resting blood pressure. So the more active you are and different types of, you know, different types of exercise are better for your heart than others. But in general, active 
folks have better blood pressure profiles than than inactive, and um, of course diet. So now you mentioned something. Resting blood pressure is lower in people who exercise. So if somebody is in the middle of a workout and they check their blood pressure and it's a little high, that's because they're working out. Yes, and absolutely. When, we're, when we do stress tests, exercise stress tests, we do expect blood pressure to increase the harder you work. Um, it's actually can be a sign of disease when it doesn't increase as you as you exercise. But yeah, we would expect in the midst of exercise and even, you know, walking around Alamo on a beach park, that would be uh, considered exercise. Your blood pressure is going to go up um, to some degree. And, you know, in the minutes following exercise, we expect it to normalize. And so a good time to check your pressure might not be while you're exercising, right after you finish, what is the best time of day to check it? You know, often I'll see people who say, well, I check it in the morning and it's high, then I take my medicine and then it goes down. Is that a good time to check it? I mean, I wonder if their medicine's working, shouldn't it still be working when they check in in the morning? This is true. And really for my patients, um, when they're first being diagnosed with high blood pressure and say you just got a blood pressure cuff at home, we encourage folks to take your, their blood pressure at all times of the day to get a feeling of when is it the highest, when is it the lowest, uh, when you know are different symptoms associated with these higher blood pressures. So morning checks are good, but we really do encourage checking it throughout the day because the goal is to have controlled blood pressure at, at all hours. Now, you talked about diet. I think you're talking about salt. Salt is, you know, salt is um, a big... It's delicious. <laughs> it adds flavor. You know, salt it's is life, not right? not something that we should have. <laughs> okay. Well, no, it is, you know, it is something we should have. Absolutely. The body needs needs salt. To, the cells need salt to to function properly. Probably um, not as much as we have though. You know, we, we live we, we, we live in a, in times in very uh, prosperous times. So uh, the abundance of salt and the availability of salt in our in our diet I don't think our caveman predecessors would have ever imagined this amount of salt. So it tastes good to us because in you know way, way back when it was hard to find and when found it was good for us. So yeah, salt is um, basically it draws more fluid into the the, the arteries and it just expands our our uh, blood volumes, and it can act on the kidneys too more directly. But um, it can, in folks who are genetically susceptible, cause a uh, increase in blood pressure. Amazingly, there's a few lucky ones out there that can have all the salt they seem to want, and it doesn't touch your pressure. But yeah, we I'm like not going to encourage that. Okay, <laughs> we don't. They're not our friends. All right, no. they won't be our friends. Well, let's talk about now. Uncontrolled high blood pressure can lead to some of the heart effects you mentioned. It can also lead to strokes, and and, and Doctor Salem, that's what you see a lot of. You mentioned the symptoms of stroke. You said either people come to the hospital because they or their loved ones notice those symptoms. Let's review what they are, because when your blood pressure is out of control, you're at a significant increased risk for heart problems, but also strokes. So what are the warning signs of a stroke, and, and what should people know about? Is there a little mnemonic to help them remember? Uh, yeah, so probably most people at this point have seen the, all the fast signs that are all over the place on TV and everything. Uh, so what that stands for, the F stands for face. Um, and basically uh, facial weakness. So that can definitely be a symptom of a stroke. So what you're looking for is an asymmetry in someone's face. If, you're, if something uh, is raising your suspicion that you or someone you know is having a stroke, you know, asking them to smile. If you're seeing one side of their mouth drooping down. Or that's it, not good. That's, that okay. could definitely be a stroke. And um, even, you know, look in the mirror, you know, use your iPhone use the, and take a look and take a picture I mean, sometimes do a stroke could, selfie. Do I have exactly. a stroke? Do a selfie. But actually, I mean, it could be. No, helpful. but I tell people sure. that because if yeah. they're by or, by themselves, you know, sometimes 
they may just have some vague, uneasy feeling. Sure. And, you know, you're, what you're looking for is something objective. Okay. Um, that's the F. What do you got for an A? A is arm. So arm weakness. So if you have the, if you lift up both your arms and one of them is kind of drifting downwards, um, that's that's definitely another very uh, a big red flag that someone could be having a stroke. And the S is for speech. Um, and this is, again, why I mentioned that, you know, someone else is, is recognizing because if if you're having a, a stroke severe enough that it's impairing your ability to either um, speak or understand speech, which can happen depending on the on the stroke, um, it's going to be a lot harder for you to kind of figure out how to get help for yourself. Um, That's true. I mean, you might call 911 and they say, what do you need? And you just exactly, can't say it. Exactly. I also wonder, could you ever think you're saying the right word, but then it doesn't come out that way? And yet in your brain, because you're having this stroke, you swore, you said, I need an ambulance. But what other people heard was blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing is sometimes when that's happening, the, the patient who's having the stroke realizes the wrong words coming out. Oh, they do recognize And sometimes it. Okay. they don't. Sometimes it they don't. It depends on what type of stroke it is. Because really when it comes to a stroke, it's all, it all depends on what part of the brain is being affected. And that's why the presentations are so different and why a lot of people don't realize it's a stroke um, right off the bat a lot of times. So what's the T? F-A-S-T. So T is time and probably of everything that's the most important one because... Time you know, is brain. Time is brain. Um, you know, every, the, the number everyone likes to throw around is, you know, every once you start having a stroke, once there's a blood clot blocking blood flow to your brain, your, your brain is uh, 2 million brain cells are dying per minute, basically. So... Um, okay, that's not depressing at all. <laughs> wow. All right, two million brain cells. You have cells. to have a sense of urgency here, you know? <laughs> Clearly, dying every minute. I mean, wow. But, uh, uh, do we have a bunch of them? Do we have some extras? Can I lose two million and still be okay? Uh, again, it goes to the part of the brain. You know, okay. it, it's, uh, you know, I've seen very large strokes where you look at someone and it doesn't, you couldn't even tell they had a stroke. And a very small stroke can leave someone completely paralyzed on one side. So a lot of it, in some sense, is luck as to what blood vessel gets affected to some degree. So is that mainly the reason why people have various symptoms? I mean, you mentioned large stroke, minimal symptoms, tiny stroke, lots of symptoms. Does it have a lot to do with the blood vessel that is going to that particular part of the brain? And that if that particular vessel gets blocked, then whatever that location in the brain controls is what you're going to have affected. Exactly. And, uh, and it also depends on which side of the brain, too. You know, a lot of times we'll ask people if they're right or left-handed because for some people, one side of the brain may be what we call the dominant hemisphere, and it may be different for someone who's left-handed. Um, so, for example, someone who has a stroke on, who's right-handed, odds are their left, the left side of their brain is the dominant side. So if they have a stroke on the left side of their brain, Odds are their symptoms are going to be a lot more severe. They'll probably have language involvement. Um, but someone may have a, a stroke even larger on the other side of the brain and have a much more um, mild, milder stroke, you know, in comparison. And that's one thing I think a lot of people don't realize is that in the brain, things are crossed. Your left side of the brain controls the right side of the yep. body. The right side of the brain controls the left side of the body. Because I think that sort of confuses a lot of folks. It does. Now, if you have symptoms on your face and you have symptoms on your arm or on your leg, is it going to be the same side of your face or is it going to be like your left face, right arm, or is it going to be right face, right arm? It will, the face, arm, and leg weakness will all be on the same side. Same side? Yep. Okay. So it'll be the left side of your body, same side, right face, right arm, right leg? Yep. Okay. And so if you have any of those signs, 911. 
911, uh, a lot of people make the mistake of waiting to see if it gets better. Uh, I can't count how many times people develop their symptoms at night and go to bed hoping they think it will improve. And then they wake up the next morning and it's, and it's still there. And it may be and worse. It may be worse. And even if it's, uh, if it's the same, the problem with that is that, you know, some of the treatments that we can offer for strokes, we can only give, you know, up to a certain amount of time after the symptoms have started. Well, sure. If, and there's, there's what they call clot busters. So there's different types of strokes. We're talking at this point about strokes that might occur with blockages. But there's also strokes that occur with hemorrhages. So if we're talking about blockages, there's clot busters. Mm -hmm. And you only have how many hours from the onset of symptoms to actually be a candidate for that? Four and a half hours. Four and a half. That's it. That's it for for the clot busting medications. Um, Kind of the exciting thing about uh, stroke treatment right now is just a couple months ago, uh, you know, we've kind of always done... um, what we call endovascular therapy, which is basically a procedure similar to what the cardiologists do with an angiogram where they put a wire from the groin and move it all the way up through the blood vessels into the brain and actually pull the blood clot out. But there has never really been any, um, we haven't been able to prove the be- the benefit to this treatment yet. But uh, for the first time uh, in the last few months, there have been clinical trials that have come out um, showing there's a benefit to this treatment. So this is the uh, this treatment we can do up to you know in most cases we'd like to do it before six hours, um, so that does kind of extend your window um, to somewhat in terms of an acute treatment we can offer, um, you know if you come to the emergency room soon enough. Um, but but either way though I mean even if your symptoms are you're past that window it doesn't mean you should wait to call nine one one anyways even if it's after the fact. So even if you go to bed you get up the next morning you still have symptoms. There's a reason why you shouldn't wait a few days to see how that goes. Yes. Is it ever a situation where once it's happened, it's happened? That's it? I mean, if you have a stroke, maybe you have some symptoms. Is there a window where you can't do anything? Um, yes, that, that's especially um, with the, when you're talking about the clot-busting medications. Um, they're not 100% effective, even if you do get there in time. And we know that the, you know, the larger the blood clot is, the less likely that medication is to work. Um, sure. Okay. So time is uh, every second is two million. Every second or minute is every minute. Every, every minute. minute. I feel better. Two million <laughs> brain cells. We'll talk about how many heart cells that is in just a minute. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Margot Vassar and Dr. Ronnie Salem. They're both doctors in the hospital at Queens Medical Center right downtown. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about heart attacks and strokes. What are the risk factors? How important is cholesterol? And what are some of the other lifestyle things that you could do even tonight just to try and reduce your risk for having these unfortunate medical problems that in some cases we can all start to work on preventing right now. Now, you can join us if you or a loved one has had a heart attack or a stroke, or you wonder, are there other symptoms ever going to get better? There might be some clues that will help us help you to get an answer to that. You can join us at 941-3689, toll free from our friends in the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. From the moment you wake up, through the chaos of your busy morning, Morning Edition is there with you. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. Protesters have been Through all you have to do, we'll bring you all you need to know every weekday on Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings from 5 to 8.30 on HPR One. 
I sat in the chair in the center of the gallery and pictured blue. There was no other work in the room. Art and artists. This week on Selected Shorts from PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m., following Travel with Rick Steves. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii, Ferraro Choi, and Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with clinical cardiologist Dr. Margot Vassar and neurohospitalist Dr. Ronnie Salem. And today we're talking about heart attacks and strokes. Now, May is National Stroke Awareness Month, and every month is Don't Have a Heart Attack Month, um, certainly because it seems to be something that we hear about more and more. And when we look at some of the statistics of what people unfortunately pass away from, every year it's either, you know, cardiovascular disease, which incorporates both strokes and heart attacks, or cancer, and they sort of fight one another for the top one or two in the nation, in the world. And it's just amazing that so many people who are now living in developing countries um, are now starting to have the risk factors of those of us who lived in the developed world. And it's it's a lot of it may have to do with diet. So, Dr. Vassar, let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, we talked about salt. Some of those lucky people can eat it whenever they want. Most of us can't. There's another issue that plays a role in dealing with strokes and heart attacks, and that's cholesterol. So tell me a little bit about what the difference is between cholesterol, good guys, bad guys, triglycerides, and how important of a risk factor this really is. Because just like with blood pressure, it seems like every time you turn around, your cholesterol goal, yep, it's in the floor. It's even lower than it was, you know. So so what's the significance of cholesterol? You know, cholesterol is something that continues to... Um, haunt. Rec- Can I say haunt? <laughs> haunt us. Uh, the recommended, recommended levels do continue to go lower and lower. But, you know, the importance of the different components, that's, that's a bit of a moving target. So when you get your cholesterol checked at your doctor's office, you'll see there's a few different numbers. There's what we call the HDL or the good cholesterol. Uh, we call that good cholesterol because it, it basically acts as a cleanup crew in your arteries. It picks like up... Like Drano. It's like your high, happy HDL Drano. It is. Okay. It, it picks up the little bits of gunk, you, or you could call it the mom the mom uh, factor, but it goes through... It, picks up the gunk, and it keeps it from causing bad problems. Then you've got your LDL, and that's the bad cholesterol. And that's the just the, you know, the more the, the fat sloppy leaving junk around. And, and it's also more inflammatory um, a component. Then it's your triglycerides, and that's the most labile component. So if you go to Cheesecake Factory and have a slice of cheesecake. Uh, okay, not like your... I've ever done that. Never, okay. never me either. <laughs> now I want to right now. Thank you, cardiology friend. Okay. I'm craving cheesecake. Thank you. Um, if you check your cholesterol about an hour after eating okay, that Okay, because of why would you? But okay, you do. People how actually high are we going? have. It's ridiculous. It's scary how high your triglycerides are. Okay, but give me a number. If it's normally 150, 150 and I just ate cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory. You could see five, six, seven hundred. Wow. Yeah, temporarily, temporarily. And that's why we have you fast. It's it's really because of triglycerides because that number can make can mask what everything else looks like so much and that's the that's the the reason why we have um have you fast when you go go get it checked. And then there's the total number. And a lot of people are like, "Oh, my total is 180," which 
sounds okay, but you really need to know the breakdown. A lot of people have super high good cholesterols, which is going to drive that number up. And and by um, in contrast, you might have a super low or super low bad cholesterol, which is often okay. Um, and so, so those are the components. Um, in general, lower the better for triglycerides and LDL. Higher the better for your good cholesterol, your HDL. Um, but yeah, so that's a short. <laughs> I mean, that's shortest. a good. That's a good thing to keep in mind. I always, it's kind of ironic because when I see people in the office, the ones who get worried the most are the ones that I see who have a very high HDL. Mm -hmm. Like they've got this Drano level of like 85 and it's awesome because normal, you know, you get 40, 45 if you're lucky, 50. If you're super lucky, 60. These people have clean arteries. Their HDL is like 85 and they get so worried because their total is high. I never see the people with really bad cholesterol get as concerned as the people with really good cholesterol. But, you know, for those who have high cholesterol, do we need to break down the LDL? Do we do all these different measures, lipoprotein A? I mean, are these standard things? Or really, honestly, look at your total number. That tells you so much information. Your LDL, your HDL, your triglycerides, you don't have to do all the fancy tests. What's what's the general idea on that? You know, and again, this is a moving target, and it depends a little bit on who who you ask the question to. Um, but I think we're understanding, and if anything, watching the trends is what what's important. Um, most of my colleagues do not do breakdowns of LDL just because, on a population base, it really hasn't shown itself to be. Of, of, of great benefit. And it doesn't, it never tells us anything we don't kind of already know. Um, so like if your LDL is high, just yeah. because your little breakdown doesn't look so bad, we've still got to get that LDL down. Yeah. But it, it, exactly. But amazingly, you know, the guy, the, the most recent guidelines for um, lipid, lipid lowering is aimed more at doses of medications and not the numbers themselves. Because I think we're realizing the numbers themselves, it's all relative. Um, we, If you've had a heart attack, we'd like to see these numbers come down. But we are going to be treating you with the highest doses of the cholesterol medicines that that, that are, are recommended because we know it's actually the high doses that, that are making the difference. So the numbers are important. You know, get your cholesterol checked if you don't know where your numbers are. But the, it's just a starting point. And from there, we, we um, use that to guide us. So basically, if you have a heart attack and you're in the hospital, they might check your cholesterol and then they're going to put you on like a Lipitor 80 or, or a Zocor or maybe a 40, maybe an 80. They're going to put you on a max dose of something. Mm-hmm. Can your cholesterol ever go too low? You know, there has been some interesting research that has has associated really low cholesterols with increased risk for things like cancer. So, um, you know, a super, super low LDL, we start to worry if there's a, or, or super, super low cholesterol numbers in general, we start to worry maybe there's some liver dysfunction because it's actually your liver that's making all of these things. So maybe the, the problem is that you're actually not making it. And then sometimes your numbers can look strange because... Your, the components of your cholesterol are actually dysfunctional. So sometimes these folks with super high HDLs might have dysfunctional HDLs or some of the components of the LDL, like you mentioned, might be more or less um, functional than other components. So, you know, again, the numbers are a starting point, but but it has to sort of, it's more of a holistic guide that I think we're learning to take now. Yeah, I mean, a couple of, what was it, a year or two ago where they said, if you have a risk, go on the medicine, 
You don't even need to check the numbers anymore if you're on the medicine. And that kind of blew a lot of folks away. I mean, it sort of blew me away. I'm like, give people medicine and never monitor it? Are you kidding? But I mean, it's an interesting thing that we're seeing in medicine where there may be such a beneficial effect of the medication that can't necessarily be measured by the testing we do today. True. And, you know, there, there was great hopes about um, six years ago, five, six years ago for an HDL raising medicine. Yeah, there was like this HDL booster and that, that uh, that and that killed that people. So yeah. well, it did more than fizzle. Okay, it it, it you know it, it, the trials were ended okay. early. So so we know it's not just about the number yeah. for sure. Absolutely, there's a new cholesterol medicine coming down the pike. And that's like some brand new medicine I don't know much about, but it's going to really lower cholesterol levels, something to do with receptors and all this sort of stuff. Do you know much about it? I don't. Not, that's not good. Bad, then I don't yeah. feel bad because you're a cardiologist. <laughs> and if you don't know much about it, I feel immune to any sort of judgment here. It's but a, life, it's something it's a new. life of learning. Well, sure. It's a new medication. And it's, it's actually, you know, looking at different ways that you make cholesterol and different receptors and all sorts of stuff. And for those people who can't take statins, hold on. There's some great stuff coming out for you, and it's coming out soon. There's other options, though, I mean, other than statins, which are the most common cholesterol medications. Mm -hmm. There are other options out there for folks who need it. Sure. And, and you know, even before talking about medicines, lifestyle modifications are still number one. Um, and we find that the changes that come about from lifestyle modifications, so that by that I mean changing your diet, exercising more, quitting smoking, um, those, those changes seem to actually do more good, you know. They they pack they pack a really strong punch when when people can um, adhere to them and, and and make them their own. Well, sure. Don't go to the cheesecake factory, get your cheesecake, and then <laughs> pop your Lipitor. I mean, Precisely. that is just probably not going to do any good for you. Precisely. All right. Although that does sound like it <laughs> tastes good. Okay. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Margot Vasser and Dr. Ronnie Salem. We're talking today about heart attacks and strokes and how not to have one. If you or a loved one has had some troubles or if you learned something interesting by monitoring yourself and changing your lifestyle, how low did you get that cholesterol to go? You can share your story, maybe help somebody else along the way. 941-3689, toll free, neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now we know cholesterol can cause heart attacks. Dr. Salem, cholesterol can cause strokes, correct? Correct. Why? So kind of along the similar the similar way it can lead to heart attacks, it, you know, high levels of cholesterol, especially LDL, puts you at a higher risk for having atherosclerosis. And, uh, so it basically, like blocks the arteries. Yeah. So eventually you get a gradual buildup of junk, basically, in the walls of your arteries. And in the brain or in the neck, that's going to comp start compromising blood flow to a certain part of the brain. And eventually some of that plaque can break off or rupture and completely block the artery. And then that's how you end up having a stroke. So those are the type of strokes where you have blockages. Yes. How effective, well, when you've seen someone in the hospital who's had a stroke, do you automatically put them on certain medications or make certain recommendations lifestyle-wise to prevent more? I mean, I can only imagine if you have one stroke, you're at a greater risk for having two or three because of whatever process led you to have the first one. So what sort of recommendations do you make to those folks so they can avoid having number two or three or hopefully no more than that? Um, so that's a great question. So basically when someone has a stroke, you know, after the initial um, moments when they actually come to the hospital and come into the emergency room and you're trying to, you know, figure out if they can be a candidate for, you know, the clot buster medication we were talking about. After that, the next step is really trying to figure out the reason they had the stroke because you can have a stroke in terms of a stroke 
caused by a blood clot for many different reasons. And the optimal way to prevent another one happening, um, you know, those treatment strategies are going to be different depending on those causes. Sure. I mean, if it's because you have blood clots developing in your body, that's one thing. If you have super high blood pressure, that's another. If your cholesterol is crazy, you know, treat those sources so that you can avoid another one. Exactly. So it might, it might just be, you know, making sure you're very aggressive about bringing the blood pressure and cholesterol down and controlling their diabetes, for example. Um, but talking about atherosclerosis, you know, sometimes people can get it really bad in the carotid arteries, which are the main blood vessels in their necks. If somebody has a stroke because of that, sometimes we have to do surgery to uh, go in and actually clean out um, all that stuff in the walls of their artery to, to prevent them from having more strokes in the future. Absolutely. So, so in, in terms of stroke prevention, the mechanism of why they actually had the stroke to begin with is really very important to try to figure out the best way to prevent any more. Do you figure that out most of the time by the time someone leaves the hospital? Um, you would be surprised. Uh, it might sound a little scary, but probably about a third of the time we don't. Uh, Ever have a, or just in the hospital? Uh, in the hospital. Okay. A third of the time we don't um, find, find a definitive explanation for the stroke. Um, and this is kind of where our cardiology colleagues help us out because we start, we're starting to realize a lot of these people um, you know, may have an underlying irregular heartbeat. Um, such as atrial fibrillation. And the reason it's important to know that is because, you know, putting them on aspirin or, or a blood thinner like that is not going to be a strong enough blood thinner to prevent another stroke. You know, th- patients with that kind of irregular heartbeat, we put on much stronger blood thinners. Um, so we, those are the kind of people we'll do very long-term extended monitoring um, to look for irregular heartbeats because they're very difficult to diagnose. Most people don't know they have it. It kind of is intermittent. It comes and goes. And most people don't have any symptoms from it. Um, so, so it's really hard it's to know. It's very I mean, challenging. Unless yeah. they happen to be on a monitor when you exactly have them. Exactly. And they develop this little heart arrhythmia, they may never know. And you could go searching and searching. And exactly. without being able to prevent another stroke, there could be more consequences. Okay. We've got a couple of callers on the line. We have George on the line from Maui. George, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. What can we do for you? I am uh, 90 years old now, as of May 6th. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm very physically active. And uh, in the past year, maybe even two years, I've been getting extremely high blood pressure readings, sometimes so high it won't even register. But my, uh, like I can be up to... 185 or along in there, but I've never seen the resting pressure much, even up to 70. And even with those high readings, even still, the um, diastolic could be like 68. And um, I, well, when they recently, the when they first, doctor first saw that high, they that high reading, I'm going to new doctors now, they immediately put me on bistolic with no discussion or talk about it, and uh, 10 milligrams, one pill a day. And um, so one of the many physical things I'm doing is I started outrigger canoe paddling uh, just about a year ago. And I feel real good and strong paddling, and we'll get out 
maybe a half mile out or something, and I always feel good. But after I started taking the Bistolic a couple times coming in, I just could barely paddle. And I um, I don't know that the Bistolic is the cause of it, but anyway, I quit taking it. Well, George, I've got a couple of suggestions for you. All right. So first things first, go see your doctor with your blood pressure machine because you want to make sure that your machine's reading accurately. Because I've seen a lot of folks who come in, their machine's about dying. They've had it for 10 years. Maybe the batteries need to be changed. So before you make judgments on the pressure, you got to make sure you're collecting accurate data. Okay. Second thing is that I'm glad to know that you said we're doing outrigger paddling, and that means that you're not the only one in the boat. Because if you were out there all by yourself at 90, having feelings like you're so tired you can't get back in, that's not good. So I'm glad you're part of a team. At least I'm hoping that there's other members on that team and you can kind of let them know a little bit about what you're, what you're dealing with and what you're going through. Yeah, they're all very careful. Good. I'm glad. I mean, I'd hate to hear about you being, you know, fire rescue and all that kind of stuff on the news. So I'm glad that you've got some buddies that are really helping you out. And last but not least, talk to your doc. There are hundreds of different blood pressure medicines. And if the one they chose for you might not be working best for you, you know, I mean, you run the risk if your blood pressure is really truly in the 180s of having a stroke or a heart attack. And and that could be it. Um, You also run the risk of having a stroke and being half paralyzed. And I think for a lot of folks, particularly in your situation, you know, unfortunately, if they have a massive stroke and they pass on, that's a very unfortunate event. But their their worst nightmare would be, you know, being in a situation where they have a stroke, like Dr. Salem talked about, where like the right side of your body doesn't move, but the left side still moves. And then you're in a totally different situation care-wise and otherwise. So, if you're you, you want to treat the pressure, and I think Dr. Vassar, you would agree, you want to treat the pressure. You want to, yeah, you want to treat the pressure. The one caveat is sometimes in older folks, the actual arteries that you're checking the blood pressure can harden, and it can present some challenges um, in making sure you get an accurate blood pressure. Make sure your doctor is checking it on both sides. Um, sometimes but, even you know comparing what what you get in the legs um, if your legs are small enough to to make sure you know that that you're getting a pressure that is the true pressure. But there's other medicines out. Out there. Oh, for sure, for sure, and that the um and the probably the biggest side effect of bistolic and medicines of that class are of fatigue. Um, so so absolutely, there are many many medicines, um, and everyone can be a little bit different. Absolutely. So you know, good news, George. There's help out there, and it doesn't have to be the medicine that you stopped on your own, which is probably not the best of all plans, but go see your doc, make sure you're getting good data and talk with them about your side effects so that you can find a medicine that'll keep you paddling. And then we'll see you on the news when you're winning canoe races at the age of 100, which would be so awesome and and not because you're having some other side effect. So, so please do take care of that, George. And I appreciate you calling in and sharing your story with us that everybody can know if you don't feel good on your medicine, you can probably talk to your doctor and change that medicine to something else. So you do have some options there. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Margot Vassar and Dr. Ronnie Salem. When we come back in just a minute, we're going to talk to some more callers and talk a little bit more about what else to do to prevent heart attacks and strokes and why cholesterol and blood pressure, well, it's just the beginning, but it's a really good place to start. You can join us at 941-3689. Toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. 
On the next Humankind, Bay Area physician and author Rachel Naomi Remen describes her popular course on the healer's art, taught at half of American medical schools. Also, filmmaker Matthew Heineman discusses his powerful documentary on how our medical system often looks for health in the wrong places. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. This evening at 6.30, right after Marketplace. Bumming around countries where people don't own much taught Jake Ducey an important lesson. I really saw that you really need very little to live a happy life. And Matt Kepnes has tips for traveling the world on $50 a day. So I usually do a 20 for accommodation, 20 for food, 10 for everything else. There's an amazing travel tale waiting for you on the next Travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m. following Fresh Air. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Margot Vassar and Dr. Ronnie Salem, both working at Queen's Medical Center in the hospital. We're talking today about how to prevent heart attacks and strokes and why you don't want to have those and some simple lifestyle things that we can all do today to really help prevent ourselves from suffering these events as time goes on. Now, before the break, we were talking with, with George from Maui and said, hey, don't just stop your pills. Find some good pills that work for you because there's lots of choices out there. Um, but so happy to hear he just turned 90 and he's so physically active out there on the outrigger. Fantastic. We want to hear good stuff, George, and not, not that you have to be rescued or something. Okay. We've got another caller on the line. We've got Mike from Kaneohe. Mike, welcome to The Body Show. Uh, aloha. Aloha, Mike. What can we do for you? Well, I've got a couple of uh, questions about nutrition. Uh, I, of course, you've known for a long time that dietary cholesterol isn't, important, isn't as important as, say, managing your uh, saturated fat. But I've been hearing that you should be eating saturated fat, olive oil, to get your HDL up and keeping down the trans fat and the saturated fat in order to get your LDL down. And then I've also been reading recently about how important it is to have potassium in your diet for your heart health. So it's not like you should be eating a lot of salads with olive oil dressing. Uh, okay. On those, you know, those general things, uh, that cat, uh, we're, we're having a little trouble hearing you, Mike, but what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about your question about olive oil and potassium because that's some great nutritional stuff that I, that I want to address because you're right. Now, Dr. Vassar, you think... Don't eat oil, don't eat cholesterol and fat, and yet you hear everywhere olive oil is good for you. Um, yeah, well, okay, sure. if you yeah. have to have oil, <laughs> let's not, let's not yeah, presume everybody you know, has to and, go and, and down stuff with oil. But okay. Yeah, there's some new hot oil coming out every, every, now it's all about the coconut oil and this, that, the other. I think the big thing is to have a balanced diet. Absolutely. Okay. And, and I agree. Yes. Yeah, some, some oils are worse than that. Don't, don't go frying everything in lard. That's a terrible idea. But, um, if you have to choose oil, olive oil, exactly. probably better for you. Right. And then potassium rich diet. Potassium. Yeah. And, and again, you know, we're, we're eating so much processed foods and, you know, going through the drive throughs and getting things. And that's where we're losing. Are you these- following me? <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, I'm kidding. But, you know, that's where we're losing the normal potassium, magnesium, all these electrolytes that really should be, you know, grab some fresh fruit, grab some fresh vegetables, especially we're here in Hawaii. There's there's um, such great abundance everywhere you go. And I think, you know, I I, I, I worry when folks will get too, too concerned with just one electrolyte or something like that. The point is a good balanced diet. Okay. And if you've had problems with strokes, kind of the same thing, Ronnie. You just got to be careful with your diet, but, you know, try and have a healthy balanced diet overall. Yeah, exactly. And so I think something that's kind of gaining a lot of uh, a lot more steam and at least in kind of the the medical circles is the Mediterranean diet. Um, you know, there's actually been proven health benefits with this. So after a patient's had a stroke, that's something I'll commonly recommend to them. You know, they've actually just shown that it can lower your risk of having a stroke. Um, so uh, Mediterranean diet, meaning uh, for people that aren't, you know, aren't familiar with it, you know, a diet very heavy in fruits and vegetables and grains and, you know, lean protein like fish or, pol- uh, or uh, uh, pr- poultry. And, they, you know, they have a lot of olive oil in that diet as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, you mentioned that sometimes people have to go on blood thinners. Yeah. And some people who have strokes have to go on blood thinners like warfarin or Coumadin. And they have to be really careful with their diet. So what sorts of things do they need to be extra mindful of? Um, so patients who are on Coumadin, um, you know, they have to, the big thing is uh, a lot of times the green, their greens is kind of what um, you worry about because the vitamin K levels can really alter the level of Coumadin um, in, their blood, in their bloodstream. So, so it, if they it's, can't it's eat, more like, green leafy veggies, you know. No, it's not that they can't eat it. They just have to eat it on a consistent okay, level. Okay, so regularly. So if it's going to affect their warfarin or coumadin yeah. levels, it's going to be the same effect all the time, can be somewhat predictable. Exactly, because if it's really varying from day to day, then that's when you get your levels all out of whack, and then that can lead to either your blood being too thin or too thick and all the side effects that come along with that. Okay, and so some of the newer blood thinners kind of eliminate that? Yeah, you don't you don't have to really worry about dietary restrictions as much with the new blood thinners. Um, you know, I, I I actually use them a lot myself um, in stroke patients. Uh, you know, especially as a neurologist, the, I think the really one of the big things about the new blood thinners, um, other than convenience, which they're a lot more convenient. You don't have to monitor blood levels. There's no strict dietary restrictions. There's not as many interactions with other medications. And there's actually they're a much lower risk of uh, bleeding in the brain with these medications. Uh, so some good advances that yeah, are coming out. Yeah, I think that so. They don't put the same diet restrictions on yep. there. I mean, you know, since we're talking diet, and thanks for Mike for bringing that up because it was something that we wanted to discuss. Okay, so some general healthy balanced diet. Don't overindulge in any particular food item, and and don't restrict anything to the point where you crave it, and then just go on a binge of whatever that happens to be. So okay, so general healthy diet recommendations, and be careful with your medicines. We've got another caller on the line. We've got Roger from Manoa. Roger, welcome to the Body Show. Hi, how are you? Good. How about yourself? I'm fine. I just uh, I'm a guy that's had AFib for couple of decades, just off and on, paroxysmal AFib, and um, I don't take the, the, the big-time blood thinners because I'm one of these guys that knows exactly when I'm in AFib, and well, I can so monitor lucky, how Roger. long I'm in it, and I'm at least, I don't know, for better or for worse, I have an impression that if it doesn't go much beyond 24 hours, that you're pretty safe in terms of, of stroke, but... In my reserve, um, sort of my parachute would be if it went on and on 24 hours, 36 hours, 48 hours, I would take um, 
one of the major blood thinners like Prodaxa or Eliquis. But I was told that, and then go off it. Once I'm, you know, I, I feel like there's like a danger period. Maybe I have a misconception, but then when I was out of AFib, and you just have to take my word for it, I know when I'm in or when I'm out, um, and then I could go off the, the blood thinner. But I was told that there's a higher incidence of stroke after going off the blood, those blood thinners for a no-known reason, not necessarily that someone with AFib is still getting AFib. I don't know. Is that your, your guys' experience? or? Well, it's a great question, Roger, if I can kind of encapsulate what you're saying. You don't take blood thinners now. But if you did, if you noticed that you went into this atrial fibrillation, funny heartbeat, for more than 24, 36 hours, you would consider it. And yet you're wondering, can you stop it after that? And if so, is there some unusual risk of having a stroke once you stop the blood thinner that we don't we don't necessarily know how to prevent? So I'm not quite sure, Dr. Salem or Dr. Vassar, if you would know about that. Because you're unusual, Roger, in the fact that, you know, first off, you know when you go into fibrillation. So you're lucky because a lot of people don't. But I think that um, the intermittent use of strong blood thinners while you're in fibrillation without continuing on those is not something that a lot of folks have studied. I don't know how much experience we have with that, only because it's an unusual way to use blood thinners. Not that it isn't done, but I'm curious. Dr. Salem, any thoughts on periodic intermittent use of blood thinners to prevent strokes only when people are having fibrillation symptoms? Yeah. uh, So, Roger, I, I probably would recommend that you don't do that anymore. Um, because all of the the major clinical trials that looked at these new blood thinners like Eliquis and Perdaxa and Zarelto, they did find all the people that dropped out of the study and stopped taking the medication, they all did have a much higher rate um, of stroke after stopping the medication. Inexplicably. Uh, there are some you know, postulations as to why, okay. but no one's exactly sure. Uh, I mean, if you th- these medications work... Um, you know, they, they're changing your whole coagulation system in your sure, body. Sure, they're blocking they're, factors that you need to yeah, form blood And there clots. might be some rebound, hmm. rebound hypercoagulable effect, but we're not sure is the bottom line. But beyond that, just because you're, you know whether or not you're in AFib or not, uh, people that have AFib can have strokes even if they're not in AFib. You know, I don't think you okay, should you use just, that as you your just marker. blew us away. <laughs> people who have AFib can have strokes even when they're not in AFib. Yeah, Blown away. Tell me more. <laughs> well, I mean, basically having, especially if you've had AFib for decades, as you say, you've probably had some long-term changes to the actual structure of your heart. Um, so that, you know, that... So that in and of itself, even if you're not in the funny heart rhythm, could lead to a stroke. Yes. Okay. And that that is absolutely true, because what we know is that the coordination of the atria... Um, loses you lose coordination of the atria the more times you're in afib and that's Mm -hmm. why we have the saying afib begets afib um and we know particularly the time when the body first comes out of being in atrial fibrillation those your coordination of the contraction is poor so even though your rhythm is normal we know electrically your rhythm looks normal um mechanically it is is isn't it is not a normal contraction so you have to be a little wary all right. So even if you're not an AFib, Roger, you might still have a risk. Keep an eye on that because you're right. You know your body better than anybody else, but you're also the one that's going to have to deal with your body if it if it 
goes against you and gives you that unfortunate event like a stroke. So so do talk with your doctor and come up with a really good plan, but it doesn't sound like it's going to be one of those blood thinners that you're going to stop all of a sudden. So an important thing to know, and that was kind of new info for me too. So blown away. Thank you, guys. All right, we've got Joe on the line from Maui. Joe, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. Hi, what can we do for you? Well, for about the last 10 years, maybe every couple of years, I have a group of symptoms uh, that are double vision, uh, or almost like a prism, but double vision, and then get lightheaded, a little nausea, and then kind of a vagal nerve response. And the whole thing lasts about five minutes. So I've gone through all the tests with the neurologist, with the digestive tract, with the heart, with the eyes, and nobody finds anything. Uh, I just had another one not so long ago, and um, I'm kind of like, well, am i got to go through all those tests again, or what is this? And most people, and the reason I'm calling is when I heard the face description of the um, usual symptoms for stroke, uh, these aren't included in that, and yet most people say, oh, it's probably a stroke. So I'd like a little feedback maybe from Dr. Salem or maybe from both. It's a good question. You know, do strokes have to include facial asymmetry? Do you have to have a face component? And, you know, to that, I think I can give you a, nah, you don't have to have that. It could be, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. There's a good part in all this, and I'm going to have Dr. Salem talk it just a sec. The good part is, Joe, they don't find anything. Because if they do find something, I'll be honest, we're a bunch of docs here. We look for bad stuff. We we don't look for good stuff. We're looking to find a problem. So when a bunch of doctors sits down and says, we don't find a problem, please, under no circumstances does it mean you don't have symptoms. It means, hey, we didn't find any obvious source of a stroke, a tumor, a blood clot, you know, some sort of cancer or something really bad. We may not be able to explain it, but hey, at least at least we didn't find something really horrible and life-threatening and and deadly. So so I'm curious Dr. Salem people can have stroke symptoms that don't have to include the fast, the face, the arm, the speech, the timing. They can have no symptoms and still have a stroke. They can have symptoms of just just something strange that nobody else might understand and that can be a stroke or they could they could wind up having classic facial asymmetry. Any one of those. Right. And again, that gets back to what we were talking about earlier with it all depends on which part of the brain is affected. And, uh, you know, there are strokes where the symptoms can be so subtle that it's it might just be a little incoordination in your hand. Some people will notice they're dropping things out of their hand. Um, some people will just lose their peripheral vision on one side. And there are silent strokes where people... Sure, you find you, out later, hey, looking, on your scan, yeah. did you know you had three strokes? And they're like, what are you yeah, talking about? Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think in terms of uh, in terms of the symptoms you've been having, I think uh, you know there's something to be said about the fact that this has been going on for so long, and the symptoms have never lasted. You know, with uh, with point. mini strokes or TIAs as as they're called, you know, they're usually you know we always tell people they're kind of a warning sign for a stroke that's going to happen. This has been going on for years and years. Um, you know, you, and and they, you've been worked up and had multiple tests that are negative, I think the odds of this being some type of vascular event in your brain are very low, you know, and there are things that we call stroke mimics um, that can seem and uh, that can seem like a stroke to people and can be very, you know, troublesome, but things like migraine headaches um, or seizures a lot of times um, can feel to, to somebody like or worry them that they may be having a stroke 
And sometimes the symptoms can be very similar. Uh, you know, I've seen people with with migraines completely paralyzed on one side of their body. Um, same thing with seizures. Um, so I think you know that's kind of uh, kind of how I look at it usually, um, especially after having all these negative tests. Stroke mimics. That's another another blown away episode. Stroke <laughs> mimics. Okay, so there's there's hope out there for you, Joe. But no, you don't have to do all the tests again. Be reassured. It's been ten years. We didn't find anything bad yet. Okay, we've just got a few minutes, maybe just a minute. Oh, no. Claudia from San Diego, welcome to the Body Show. We've got just about a minute. What can we do for you? I'm 13 years old, and I have type 1 diabetes, and I was just wondering, like, what are ways to prevent having a stroke? What a great question. Awesome that you're 13 and you're thinking about it already, and I'm just so happy that you were able to share with that and call us. So... How do you prevent a stroke as a type 1 diabetic? Great question. Ronnie Salem, you're on it. Claudia <laughs> wants to know, type 1, what can she do? Well, I think at that age, unless she has any strong genetic um, issues that run in the family, I think at that point just making sure you're controlling your blood sugar is really the, the main thing you, you should be worrying about at that point. Keep your sugars down. Yep. Do your best. Be active. Enjoy your life, Claudia. Don't Have some start fun smoking. Out there. <laughs> and that's a good one. Don't, Don't start, start smoking. smoking. Absolutely, because that can certainly get you in trouble. But most important thing is, you know, you're 13. Sometimes this is the age where people feel invincible, but we're not. And as a type 1, take charge of your health. Don't be smoking. Watch your sugars. Exercise regularly. Watch your salt. And just do a great job of just managing how to be a teenager, but also managing your health. And that'll take you a very long way. I saw a woman today in my office. She's about 43. She has type 1. She's doing fantastic. She's got a great family. She's got a couple of kids. She's got a great husband. You can live a long, healthy life with type 1, and you can do great. So keep an eye on those sugars, and you'll do fabulous, Claudia. But thank you for being so active about health. And being so young, I think it's fantastic. Thanks, Claudia. It's great. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank both of you for being on our show today. I want to mention again, there is the What You Should Know About Stroke, May National Stroke Awareness Month, Wednesday, May 27th, 6 to 7 at Queens Conference Center. More information at queensmedicalcenter.org. Dr. Salem, you're going to be doing this conference talking about ways to prevent strokes and going over some of these symptoms. So if you have more questions, you've got another chance to ask. And every Saturday in June, 830 to 1030 at Polymomy Medical Center, learn all sorts of stuff about strokes and headaches and dementia and migraines and all different things that you can learn about there. So I want to thank both of you for being on the show today. Dr. Margo Vassar, you're a clinical cardiologist at Queens Medical Center. Love you. Don't want to be your patient. Thank you. Dr. Ronnie Salem, love you. Don't want to be your patient. Strokes, taking care of everybody at Queens. And if you'd like to hear this show again, click on our podcast, whypublicradio.org. Our engineer, David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Koslovich. I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak. We'll see you right here next week on The Body Show. Woo!